Welcome to the third instalment of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, co-hosted by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. In this podcast, we'll be focusing on climate policy in the U.S., As the U.S. is a major greenhouse gas emitter, there'll be lessons that could apply to other countries too. Our special guest is Professor Theda Scotchpol, who is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Professor Scotchpol has extensively researched the social and political dynamics that can bring about major changes in social policy in the U.S., Her most recent book, co-authored with Caroline Tervo, is Upending American Politics, Polarizing Parties, Ideological Elites, and Citizen Activists from the Tea Party to the Anti-Trump Resistance. In 2013, Professor Scotchpaul wrote the report Naming the Problem, What It Will Take to Counter Extremism and Engage Americans in the Fight Against Global Warming. It came out in the aftermath of a failed attempt at climate legislation in the US that took place in 2010. This failed legislation, sometimes referred to as Waxman Markey, for the names of its main sponsors in the House of Representatives, was a sprawling bill of over 1,500 pages, with sections on incentives, regulations and the carbon pricing section on cap and trade. The climate bill passed the House of Representatives but stalled in the Senate. Theda Scotchpaul's report dissects the various actors involved and why it failed, contrasting it with the political strategy that helped a healthcare bill pass at around the same time. The report also supports cap and dividend, or cap and share, a climate policy that is advocated by members of FASTA's climate group. Caroline is joined in this interview by Mike Sandler. Mike is a member of FASTA's Climate Group and is current chair of the FASTA Board of Trustees. He also manages the Common Share websites. Mike will say a few words now to introduce himself before we go on to the interview. Hi, I'm Mike Sandler. I first read the Naming the Problem report back in 2013, and I was struck by how it pulled together a lot of aspects I had been thinking about at the time. Why the 2010 waxman Markey bill failed and why I wasn't even really a supporter of that bill. I preferred a cap and dividend bill called the CLEAR Act, which was sponsored by U.S. Senators Cantwell and Collins. Susan Collins, by the way, was a Republican, and it's rare to find Republican support for bills like that these days. Professor Scotchpole's report also talks about political polarization, which is something we will have to deal with to pass a climate bill in the U.S. And finally, why dividends might be the key to addressing economic security with rising fuel prices. We're seeing very high fuel prices right now due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and other aspects of the global energy markets. Professor Scotch Poe's analysis became the basis for a campaign we've been brewing for several years called Dividends for America. We're still looking for organizations to partner on that. Even though her report was written almost 10 years ago, it seems very relevant today in 2022. So let's get to the interview. Welcome Theta, we're glad to have you and we're going to jump right into our questions. So Theta, you produced a Naming the Problem report. The Naming the Problem report calls for a cap on carbon and issuing universal climate dividends. Could you explain why you feel a cap on carbon is important as opposed to a fee or tax without a cap or in addition to other policies? Well, I mean, a cap has to happen simply to deal with the looming and by now even worse reality of global warming. 
And a lot of the other kinds of policy ideas that were around depended on forms of record keeping that could be gamed. But I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about caps versus other regulatory mechanisms. My focus was much more, the report that I wrote was an attempt to understand the politics working for various government interventions to reduce carbon emissions and why so many of them devised inside Washington, D.C. as policies that pass occasionally, very occasionally, are now, was failing. And to me, it was in large part because of the rise of a powerful right wing, which is now even more powerful than it was when this report was issued a decade ago, and its ability to shape public understandings based on very real costs that ordinary people would, would often have to pay with a lot of the policy ideas that were out there that would simply raise the cost of carbon energy without helping people adapt to the new energy regime that we all hope can take shape even more quickly than it has. So I was thinking much more about the dividend and the attempt to create some kind of widespread understanding of the trade-offs involved in moving to a new energy economy. And has your feeling on those strategies changed? There's the inside the beltway cutting deals strategy, and then there's the generating widespread support from households, maybe with a dividend strategy. Has your feeling on those strategies changed uh, since the report came out? Well, I mean, I find it discouraging, but not surprising that not a lot of organizing has been done. Uh, It takes more than just households hearing a message. Because for one thing, households don't hear very many messages. Many of them are checked out of politics, uh, a tendency which has uh, increased and, and understandably so. I'm a political scientist and I find myself wanting to pet my cats instead of turn on the evening news. So I can imagine how people who are raising children, trying to get by on one or multiple jobs, uh, trying to figure out how to pay the bills, how they feel about a a lot of what they see and hear. And at least in the United States, we also have a dedicated propaganda sector that about a third of the population is confined to. So simply messages about policy possibilities will not get out to people. What it takes is on the ground organizing in a lot of different kinds of communities. And those communities have to be, those organizing efforts have to be linked up. Uh, And in the United States, especially, but I think this is probably true in a lot of other countries, uh, the life circumstances of people are so different that there can't be some kind of one absolutist message. There has to be um, a back and forth, but it would be nice if some of that back and forth didn't happen among actually organized widespread constituencies rather than in back rooms at Congress or, or a parliament just before something is enacted and that most of the public doesn't understand. I think in this policy area, that's particularly dangerous because it's hard for people to understand the connections between global warming and uh, their opportunities and obstacles in life. And the best research I've seen suggests that even severe weather events don't often dent that, that disconnect that that people feel. Uh, So we know public opinion has moved in the last decade. More people say it's a serious problem, 
Uh, that's understood, but I think uh, there hasn't been a lot of movement in the direction of saying, yes, I'll pay a lot more to solve the problem or people understanding what the solutions might be. When your naming the problem report came out, did the Beltway environmental groups, those are the big environmental groups in Washington, D.C., did they react to that report? Um, did they understand what you were trying to say? Oh, there was a huge amount of hostility. Yeah, a, a lot of hostility. I mean, that's, by the way, you know, I'm, um, I study a lot of different aspects of civic life and policymaking. Over the course of my career, I've done many pieces of work. And my experience is that especially the left, of which in my citizen capacity, I'm broadly a part, doesn't like to hear anything at all that's critical of what is being currently done. My work is used more by people on the right than it is on the left. And that's a source of great sadness to me because I think research, research research that kind of lays out what is working, what isn't working, lays out alternatives is very, very important. And then it needs to be a process of, of reconsideration and learning. But I don't think that's too easy for elected politicians to do. I don't think it's easy for think tanks like the Center for American Progress, which was a, a center of really attempted to just, just smear the report. You know, it didn't work because smearing reports doesn't work with me. I mean, I, I've dealt with Harvard University all my life. I know tough people and I just, it just, rolls off my back, there was a huge amount of interest and a huge amount of discussion. And that's what counts. It's better to be attacked than to be ignored. That's always been my philosophy as a scholar and as a civically engaged intellectual. Just to follow on a little bit from what you just said, the hostility that you met, was that based on just a complete disagreement about tactics or strategy or, you know, a, a sort of a total um, acceptance of the idea where we can only work within the Beltway? Or was it more, was there another basis for it? I'm just curious to know, or, or was it even articulated at all? Well, I, I don't think it's terribly surprising. I mean, I was commissioned to write this report precisely because I hadn't done a lot of studying of environmental and, and global warming politics. So I came to it fresh and I assembled, for example, uh, many, many years of measurements to show movements in public opinion, movements in uh, elite stances, to create some perspective on the kinds of organizations that were involved in putting together the cap and trade effort. And of course my intention, and I don't believe the tone of the report was morally condemnatory. I'm an ivory tower scholar when I'm doing this kind of work. I'm looking at it from an objective, cold-blooded perspective. And that's disquieting to people who've put their heart and soul into something. And this was just a few years after these failures. So even describing what didn't work seemed like an attack to some people. And uh, some organizations are more thin-skinned than others. On the whole, I think it, it generated a lot of interest and a lot of debate and a lot of reflection and partly some misunderstandings, which are not surprising. I mean, one, one misunderstanding I think I will describe is that there's a tendency to, to array everything on a left-right spectrum and to, to, to assume that because a particular form of business deal-making was part of the cap-and-trade effort, that that meant 
that my explanation of why that didn't work, particularly in a circumstance where the right was mobilizing and affecting public opinion against any kind of government solution, uh, which by the way, came as a surprise to a lot of people, understandably. I mean, this was just gathering force in 2009 and 10. The fact that I talked about that just seemed, it seemed to many people that I was saying there should never be any attention to business interests. Now, if you read the report, that's not what I say. I actually say that uh, strange bedfellows coalitions always matter. And you're never going to get anything through the American political system, especially without some kind of um, honest bargaining with parts of, of business, dividing it against the obstructionists. So maybe you're not going to be able to deal with coal companies. You might be able to deal with some oil companies that understands they have to shift their, their business model. And you certainly can deal with the rising green energy sectors that are investing to make a profit. And I think that's even more true now than it used to be. So I believe that some of the anti-business left activism that's going on now among young people is a little bit too morally shrill on some of these questions. Uh, there's a, sometimes an attitude that you can't make a deal with any business interests without selling out. Well, actually, if you're going to change the way energy is generated and used in a, in, a, in a massive economy and world economy and national economy and the United States is a big part of that, then you do have to make deals. Uh, you have to figure out who to make the deals with and who not to make the deals with. And, and we've seen some businesses come out in favor of dividends. And we've also seen some businesses come out in favor of universal basic income. And I wanted to mention that because in the last 10 years and probably in the last five years, universal basic income has gotten a lot of attention more than ever before. It used to be kind of a niche thing. And then uh, we've even seen a presidential candidate basing his campaign around dividends. Do you think that basic income can help outreach around climate dividends? And has that changed the landscape at all? Well, you know, dividends are a form of income supplementation that can be designed very efficiently and simply and transparently. Uh, politicians don't necessarily like that because they like to be able to intervene and claim credit. Citizens are likely to like it. We know that the citizens of Alaska like their dividend system a lot. Calling it a basic income and implying that it can substitute for uh, wage work is likely to be a loser in the United States. Uh, I'm not a big believer in national values arguments, but there is something about Americans that they're addicted to work. Now, that may be softening a bit after the pandemic. I don't think we quite know what the effects of the pandemic are going to be on a lot of these things. And and I'm very humble about that, but I have a suspicion that it's changing people's sense of what matters in life and what they're willing to do. However, uh, let's face it, many people are not going to be able to sit back and say, well, I'd like to work from home or I'd like to, that's just not, not real for at least half to two thirds of, of, the, of the working age population. And the value that Americans place on people going to work for some kind of income is very high. So whatever you call it, it, it shouldn't be something that can be easily framed as a substitute for going to work. It has to be seen as getting a share of, of the revenue that would come from doing things to 
nudge the economy in a new direction, the, the energy economy in a new direction. If it's framed that way, then I think the same kinds of policies can, that, which have a redistributive side to them, they have an equality enhancing side to them, can be quite widely popular. If you can find the right kind of organizations to carry the message, I don't think you can necessarily count on elected politicians in all regions of the country to carry these messages. And I don't think you can necessarily count on existing advocacy groups to do so. Now that kind of ties in with our next question, which is whether you have specific recommendations for actions that people who are advocating cap and dividend like us should be prioritizing in the US at the moment. I mean, who would be the best, the most obvious allies or do you have any suggestions about strategy? Well, I always think in any kind of a power struggle or, or policy struggle, you look for the natural networks where people are already interacting with one another. The League of Women Voters, church networks, even some kinds of business networks, and find a way to, to help people inside those networks understand in language that they resonate with. So cap and dividend name might not be the term. The policy term is not that important. It's the goal and the means to get there explained in any kind of language that makes sense. And then get those people to carry the message to others. It's not really a matter of hiring a bunch of pollsters. I mean, these groups that they assemble are artificial and people are influenced by the way their peers talk about things and think about things. And so what the right in the United States has been very good at doing is tapping into peer networks, into conservative church networks and into gun networks. That's why Donald Trump was very good at getting elected. It's not simply you know, his charming persona. So I do think that that the center left has to find a way to do the same kinds of things. And people who, who want to propel forward a policy that is potentially understandable and acceptable and even popular with a large number of people have to find the networks through which to spread the message. That makes sense. Um, it ties in with what you wrote in naming the problem about the Obamacare or healthcare reforms, uh, it seems to me. There was a lot of connections between existing groups that were built on then afterwards. There was, but that barely made it through, and there was no follow-through afterwards. And it, mm. you will think the politics of Obamacare implementation did not turn around until the moment in which the anti-Trump resistance, which is mainly a whole thousands of groups led at, formed and led at the local level by older women activists. It's not a bunch of young people who appear on MSNBC. There's a real misunderstanding about what that anti-Trump resistance was and they are the ones that carried the message about people's stake in Obamacare and what they would lose to prevent it from being repealed. And you know, it's only since then that the politics of that uh, health reform has become popular, even though it has delivered very immediate and concrete benefits to tens of millions of people. So yeah. that's how hard it is. The delivery of benefits people know they need already is much easier in the healthcare area than it is in the cap and dividend in an area. And at this point, you know, American politics, this is what my research is now on. I study the American right. And the American right is, it's an authoritarian and anti-democratic force at this point, fed from both the top and the bottom. Yeah, I was very struck in the report also how you could really see the seeds of Trump movement looking back. It's easy to forget this stuff, because you know, the whole Tea Party movement and so on, how it feds, I would see a clear connection there. There's a pretty direct line. I mean, we're writing about this now in my research group, trying to pin it down. Uh, and, and there, the, I would say the 
the pivotal issue is immigration. And so I don't know whether the anti-global warming activists and cap and, and dividend people have thought about the way in which their messages connect with the immigration fight. But I think the immigration fight is actually the axis on which right-wing extremism has grown in the United States, even more than black-white racism, which most people point to. But I, I remember when my co-author, Vanessa Williamson, and I went out and interviewed grassroots Tea Partiers, which, you know, Harvard political scientists don't do that, but we did. And uh, we learned very quickly that what they really cared about was not what the New York Times was saying they really cared about. And what they cared about, above all, was immigration. Could I just follow on a little bit? Because I'm, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, and they had a thing called the Freedom Convoy that came down oh, yeah. from Canada. Yeah. And uh -huh. I saw a few a few big rigs on the roads with the flags and the signs. And ironically, they used the infrastructure of America to do their protest, but they all of voted course. against improving our infrastructure, right? There was a lot of irony, but I don't think those folks would really see it as ironic. They just are doing what they do. But I also, so we've talked a little bit about the Yellow Vest movement, which was in France and had a kind of energy cost component to it. It was people in the rural areas that were yeah. upset about energy costs going up. And the mm -hmm. right wing was trying to spin it as an anti-climate change policies type movement. But we didn't think so. We were thinking that dividends could actually help address some of the concerns of the yellow vest movement. And I was wondering if you think that dividends can address some of the economic dislocation kind of precarity aspect that some uh, folks would otherwise be turning towards more authoritarian directions in? Maybe, but it won't be a short-term fix because people are activated around a series of symbolic battles that they feel passionately about. I do think there is an economic underpinning to some of this, especially the yawning gaps between metropolitan areas and uh, kind of the exurbs and the uh, small town areas that feel, and even medium city areas that feel left behind. After Trump was elected, I started another research project with colleagues of which had me traveling to eight pro-Trump counties around the country, two apiece in North Carolina, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And that gave me a chance to continue talking to left and right groups, business people, church people, Democrats, Republicans, in areas that had either gone for Trump overwhelmingly, which the rural areas did, more overwhelmingly than they'd gone for Republicans before, and that has only continued, and medium cities that tipped. And there's the sense that they're left behind, that they're out of things, is very acute in these areas. And it's that resentment and that nostalgia is what Trump generalized from the Tea Party era. But you couldn't send somebody in there to say, well, we're going to give you some dividends and make the driving easier and expect that to flip. What might be true is that policies that actually spoke to some of these divides and gradually lessened the sense of exclusion that people accurately and inaccurately feel might blunt the extremist appeal over time. But of course, that horse is now out of the barn is circling in, you know, 12,000 foot rigs. You can't assume that these kinds of policies are going to appeal to or blunt the far right popular base. The idea is to appeal to people in the middle. 
and there are some, and not to have people who might otherwise support new legislation or new institutional measures at all levels, including local and state government, feel that they have to pay too high a price for that. And by the way, that's just gotten a lot worse because of energy prices shooting up with the Russian invasion. And uh, what you're going to see, we're already seeing it, is you're going to see the far right blaming Democrats who support energy transition for those energy prices. And unfortunately, that message will resonate with a fair number of people unless it's very clear that there are alternatives that people are proposing that are being blocked by Republicans in this case. And they are being blocked. I mean, we're seeing that. I wanted to mention, since we have a lot of listeners from Europe, and I was wondering if any of your thoughts on the experiences with cap and dividend from 10 years ago in the U.S. might translate into what's going on in Europe or any of those ideas about building a citizens movement. So one of our goals is to talk with people all over the world about a citizens movement for a global cap on carbon that would also result in a global dividend. (laughs) And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. How would a global dividend work? (laughs) We just had a call this morning talking with a group that's talking about world basic income. And there's a lack of institutions at the global level. But Caroline and I have attended a couple of these COP climate summits. And we Mm -hmm. sent a youth delegation to the recent one in Glasgow, Scotland. And it seems like the UN is sort of spinning its wheels also. So we have to form a new institution, maybe similar to like they have the World Trade Organization or whatever, we'd have a global climate trust and countries can join that. And then you'd have a global cap set up and revenues from the upstream fossil producers or exporters returning the dividends back to people. Yeah. Well, it's intriguing. And I'm sure that there are youth groups that would be interested in that. I will say this, that my Experience studying political and social change in many different ways for 50 years convinces me that parallel organizing often does work. If existing governance structures, and this this case of the international, I don't don't think the UN is capable of moving decisively on anything, and the U.S. government isn't either, increasingly. If, If those structures can't operate, then building a kind of parallel organized movement that can persist, but that is organized on the same scales. In the U.S. case, that means local, uh, state, and national, and the state is usually left out by a lot of leftists. In other countries, it may very well mean paralleling a parliamentary system, and it's easier to interject change in a parliamentary system, both because you can sometimes form a third or fourth party, and sometimes that moves the other parties, and, and partly because once a parliamentary coalition is in place, it can actually govern. But on the global scale, wow, I mean, that's almost beyond me. I'm not sure. Why not start with the European Union? Because, you know, the carbon producers are the anti-democratic coalition now. I mean, and there's a lot of research in political science that explains why tyrants like oil economies. It's, you don't need people. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be democratic. Really, I was only Norway, really. I guess it may be a couple of others, but it was long a democracy before. Basically, you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got Venezuela. These are all autocratic systems right now. And, and the Saudis, huh, most of all, and they won't even take a call from the American president. So I don't know where you're going to get any international order out of that. 
Yes, I think you're, you're right that it's good to start with something like the European Union. And in fact, you know, part of our strategy is, or one of the things that we're talking about is the possibility of partnerships um, between wealthier, high emissions countries that do have some, you know, some kind of political will to do something about climate. And then Global South, certain Global South countries that are also are in need of funds that could possibly join into some kind of an agreement. Um, but yes, we realize this is really thinking big, but I mean, this is obviously, it's a very big problem. <laughs> well, and I think you may have to find a way to, to reward innovation, green energy innovation, as well as trying to block. I guess that's the one thing that I've become a little bit more convinced of over the last decade that at least in the U.S. context, and maybe in the global context too, we have to find a way to both encourage and reward innovations of new kinds of energy and the new kinds of jobs, the new kinds of possibilities, the new kinds of flexibilities and freedom from dependence on things like Russia that they would bring. So that's probably an area where both inside nation, many nations and across national boundaries and I, I don't know whether you've given any thought to how to combine that with a kind of cap and dividend system, innovation and reward system. And I don't know, I think they might be able to be combined, but that's just off the top of my head. I, I actually haven't studied this lately and I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about, I, I need to, when I study a movement, I have to understand the exact organizational features of it. I'm an organizational theorist. I study organizations and I'm convinced as a political scientist that ongoing organization and connections across organizations are what drive change. So that means that I usually have to do more than read a newspaper article or even a policy proposal to understand what the possibilities are. And that's the kind of work we're doing now on the American right, but it's very detailed work and it requires a lot of creativity and figuring out sources of data that are not typically used uh, in the social sciences. That was Professor Theda Scotchpol being interviewed by Mike Sandler and Caroline White. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps and watch out for our next installment at the end of May. Yes, we really enjoyed doing the interview with Professor Scotchpole. To find out more about her Scholars Strategy Network, check www.scholars.org. For more information on a campaign in the U.S. to promote climate dividends, following the recommendations in her Naming the Problem report, you can check www.dividendsforamerica.org. Many thanks to Professor Theda Scotchpaul and to Mike Sandler for their participation, and as always, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Mm-hmm.